Thanks for tuning in. One of the things that makes a show like Outcasting possible is financial support from listeners like you. Please visit us at mfpg.org and click on support to make your tax-deductible contribution. Thanks. First of all, it's important to remember that the crisis is not over, that we are still facing enormous challenges in ending the AIDS crisis locally, nationally, and around the world. And I have many friends who are still deeply involved in all those areas, fighting the crisis, uh, begging for more government help, begging pharmaceutical companies to do more research, be more reasonable in their pricing, uh, begging the world to pay attention and to end the stigma that still exists out there and the ignorance. So all of that is still going on. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Dhruv. On this edition of Outcasting, youth participant Lauren talks with Ann Northrup, a journalist and activist, about activism surrounding the AIDS epidemic. We talk about her work in ACT UP, a direct action advocacy group that worked to improve the lives of people living with AIDS. We discussed the many areas of life that the AIDS epidemic affected, the responses of the government and of the public, and the long-lasting impacts of the epidemic. This is the second part of a two-part series. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. And thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. You're welcome. Thank you, Lauren. When we left off last time, we were talking about ACT UP's purpose, and we started to talk about how it planned its actions. You explained that you'd target an agency and try to meet with them to negotiate an answer, but if they weren't willing, you would start planning an action to publicly shame them, draw the public's attention to them, and try to get them to do the right thing by exposing the issue to the public. Once you got to that point, what happened next? We would spend a lot of time figuring out, all right, what is the right way to get attention for this issue? What exact action is going to make a difference with people? So whether it was people barricading themselves inside an office at a pharmaceutical company or stopping traffic in the middle of Fifth Avenue or doing a demonstration outside the New York Times to complain about their coverage or, most famously, going inside and outside St. Patrick's Cathedral in December of 1989 to expose the fact that the Catholic Church in New York City was sitting on the Board of Education for public schools and interfering with the public schools' curriculum of sex education in those public schools which we thought was just unbelievably horrendous. Why was the Catholic Church allowed to have a voice in sex education in the public schools of New York City? Not to mention their interference with uh, condom use, which we considered genocidal of them to be uh, teaching people not to use condoms, or their interference with women's reproductive rights, all of which were on the agenda when we did our Stop the Church action. But sometimes our actions were two people going into an office and handing out flyers to all the workers there, telling them 
what we thought their company was doing wrong. We would just boldly walk into the office, hand out our flyers, and leave. Everything was just being fearless, being truthful, and uh, being clear about what our goals were. What other roles did ACT UP have in the LGBT community other than being an activist group? We were there to be an activist group, to be the cutting edge, to be the front lines of activism. But the people in ACT UP came from a variety of places and jobs. Many people in the in ACT UP were people who were working in social service agencies during the day, doing the work that needed to be done to help people in the AIDS crisis. But ACT UP's role was not to be a social service agency. ACT UP's role was to be an activist group, to effect change that was needed to save people's lives. Do you think that the AIDS epidemic changed the public's views on health care in the United States? I think the AIDS epidemic had a huge effect on people's attitude towards health care in the United States. Uh, first of all, one of our rallying cries was health care is a right. And <laughs> that was a new concept uh, in the 80s and has not been fully realized to this day, but that's a lot of what the Obamacare, so-called the Affordable Care Act, was supposed to be about, although it was really a half measure. We haven't gotten there yet, but uh, the idea that health care is a right, that the government and the pharmaceutical companies should be trying to save lives, I think, was a radical notion. And Beyond that, the whole idea of patient knowledge and empowerment was also new. One thing we prided ourselves on was that we knew more than anybody else about the epidemic. We had such smart people who were so committed to doing the work to study what the science was, what the political issues were, what the social issues were, we knew it, and so we would go into meetings with government officials or pharmaceutical companies or whatever, and we would know more than they did. And that kind of taking power by educating ourselves was something fairly radically new, I think. Uh, I'm sure there are other examples before us, but it was new to most of the world, and I have to say that I uh, have seen since then uh, the breast cancer movement certainly paid very close attention to what we were doing and learned a lot from us and got a lot more energized and radicalized by watching what we were doing. I've gotten a lot of calls from people in various uh, sectors. Lyme disease patients have called me for lessons on how to do direct action to get themselves listened to and paid attention to. And certainly, you know, some of the people affected by HIV uh, strongly were hemophiliacs. And I think the uh, community of people with hemophilia got a lot more radical working with ACT UP. So I, I think that has been a, a major effect across the board. That's really interesting how, like, how many different movements it's affected. Yes, fascinating. And of course, we were built on the experience of all those movements that came before us. The tactics we used, the attitude we had, 
came directly out of the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement and the feminist movement. And a lot of the women in ACT UP, the lesbians and straight women, had come out of the feminist movement and these other movements. There was a guy who got up at a meeting one night and announced that he had been the national secretary of Students for a Democratic Society. ACT UP was a fascinating conglomeration of people trying to save their own lives because they were living with HIV, and then all of us who had been in various other movements who recognized the politics and the urgency of HIV and AIDS and came together with those people who were living with it to form a a very mighty movement that brought our experience together with their urgency and created something very, very special and powerful. I see that actually in some of the uh, anti-gun movement these days. You have the people who've been directly affected, who've been, uh, you know, the Parkland students who've been through a school massacre, the mothers whose kids have been killed by police or in other massacres, and you bring them together with people who are just generally terrified by the dangerous gun culture in this country, and they are trying to form a powerful and effective force. They're up against very, very large obstacles in their way, but I see the same kind of coming together of those different communities to work together. I was wondering about that earlier when you mentioned that one thing about ACT UP was that, like, we're not here to be liked or we don't expect to be liked because I think a lot of with the kids from Parkland and the whole gun control movement that's kind of happening right now, they're, it's interesting how they're, like, not hiding their emotions at all, which is good because they are angry and they're upset and that's that shouldn't be hidden. I think that's absolutely true. Certainly we could debate this for years, and many have, and many will continue to forever. People ask me for advice about what they should do, and some people will say, oh, I could never get arrested, or I don't like street demonstrations, or whatever. And I say, look, I don't care what you do. Do what's right for you. If uh, writing letters to your member of Congress is right for you, if giving money to organizations is right for you, if getting out in the streets is right for you, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you do something. And in fact, we need all those things. So people should do what feels right to them, and they should not sit around saying, I should do this. (laughs) They really need to do what feels comfortable for them. But my hope is they'll do something. Please register to vote and vote. Give a little money to an organization you admire that you think is effective. People showing up for all these demonstrations, I think, is just magnificent. That is how the Vietnam War ended, because we got a critical mass of people out in the streets in peaceful demonstrations. We brought a million people to Washington, D.C. repeatedly to demand an end to the war. And ending the war was never a majority feeling in the country, but the demand for its end was so urgent and so large that eventually the war had to end. 
This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, produced by Media for the Public Good in New York, online at outcastingmedia.org. On this edition, Outcasting youth participant Lauren is talking with Ann Northrup, a journalist and activist, about activism surrounding the AIDS epidemic. You are a good friend of Gilbert Baker, the creator of the Rainbow Flag. We interviewed Gilbert in 2017, about a month before he died. During that interview, we asked him how the LGBTQ community has recovered from the AIDS crisis, and he said that the gay community has not yet recovered. Do you agree? I absolutely agree. It is not over for the LGBTQ community. We have not recovered in sort of global ways and more personal ways. Those of us who were alive through the height of the epidemic are war veterans, and we have various levels of post-traumatic stress, and the epidemic is still on. You know, it is not ended, and people are still becoming infected every single day, and there is still rampant ignorance out there, both among those who are getting HIV and those who are far distant from it. Now, you then have the cohort of people who are younger, who didn't live through it, who seem to be untouched by it. But there's so many complex levels of this that it's hard to tease out where it starts and where it stops. I think the experience of the epidemic continues to permeate our lives, whether we know it or not. Now, there is also a silver lining to the epidemic, and I am reluctant to even call it that, but we have to acknowledge that one effect of the epidemic is that it accelerated the LGBTQ liberation movement a million-fold. Because people who were closeted were forced out of the closet by being sick and couldn't hide anymore, suddenly millions of people around the country and around the world found that they knew gay people when they hadn't realized that before in their families, among their friends, among their co-workers. And that brought the issues of homophobia to the forefront and made people deal with these directly. And in the context of a community that was really hit hard by something horrible, that they had not created and were not responsible for. So all the advances we have made legally, socially, personally in the last 30 years have a lot to do with the fact that the HIV-AIDS epidemic hit. How does the epidemic affect LGBTQ youth who are not alive for the height of it? Well, it's a good question, and I wish I knew the answer. I would be li- I would like to be talking to more youth now about that. But unfortunately, a lot of them are getting infected because they're not getting AIDS education, because that is being neglected by the schools and the government, because society has put it on the back burner. So the first level is that they are personally at risk. With any luck, there because there are better treatments, they stand a much better chance of living a, a long and healthy life, but they are at risk, and they don't all know it. And it is shameful that we are still having to demand that the government do the education that it has always failed to do adequately. Now, they are also missing a generation older than them that could be their mentors and their friends and could teach them their history 
And that's, uh, a lot of that is gone. And so I think of them as uh, somewhat adrift, uh, missing that natural generational flow. And just the shell-shockedness of those who are their elders undoubtedly affects their relationships with them. So uh, I imagine it ha- it continues to have major effects rippling through the community on an ongoing basis, although they might tell you otherwise. Adrift is a pretty accurate word. Yeah. One good effect, I think, for youth is that they are the next generation of activists. And uh, the self-respect and pride and joy that we found in the movement has been transferred to many of them. Certainly, we have been astonished over the last uh, couple of decades by how much younger people are when they come out and how powerful their uh, lives have become and how much self-respect they have and how they demand respect and demand justice. And I like to think that is our legacy. And I'm very proud of the work I see them doing in stepping out and stepping up. Uh, So I think that's a very positive effect of the activism of the AIDS uh, epidemic. With advances in treatment, HIV is no longer the almost automatic death sentence it used to be. What do you think that the next generation of LGBTQ youth needs to know regarding STDs and HIV in particular? Well, certainly it's a very complicated situation these days with uh, treatment advances and even PrEP, uh, pre-exposure prophylaxis, uh, Truvada for the most part. Uh, making people essentially immune if they take the pills regularly uh, because then they stop using condoms. And then we start the cycle all over again from the 70s of sexually transmitted infections. And we see accelerating rates of gonorrhea and syphilis and chlamydia and things like that. And, uh, you know, HPV, human papillomavirus, is a cancer causer. And we know about it, we pay attention to it causing cancer when transmitted uh, vaginally to women, but we don't pay attention to the fact that it is transmitted uh, anally to men. And and we start having epidemics of anal cancer because we're not talking about that. And men are not using condoms for anal intercourse. Uh, so is this a, an unstoppable cycle that will go on and on and on? Uh, I understand the reluctance to use protection and the desire not to have to do that, but you know, we wear (laughs) seatbelts We pay some attention to speed limits, if not entirely. Uh, We try to eat in healthy ways and not uh, put poison in our systems. Uh, Fewer and fewer of us smoke or drink to excess. Uh, And and yet we're quite cavalier about our sex lives and, and how intelligent we are about protecting ourselves there. So I think that's a big area to be examined. What long-lasting impacts has the crisis had on the LGBTQ community and on the world? Oh, well, there's an easy question. 
First of all, it's important to remember that the crisis is not over, that we are still facing enormous challenges in ending the AIDS crisis, uh, locally, nationally, and around the world. And I have many friends who are still deeply involved in all those areas, fighting the crisis, uh, begging for more government help, begging pharmaceutical companies to do more research, be more reasonable in their pricing, uh, uh, begging the world to pay attention and to end the stigma that still exists out there and the ignorance. So all of that is still going on. Uh, so the long-lasting effects are both good and bad. There is the pride that the LGBT community has found in coming together to fight this epidemic and to find its own liberation. There is the example we have set for the world. I do this weekly news show, Gay USA. Google it. You can all find it online. And we report every week about uh, liberation movements for LGBT people in the most unlikely places around the world. These days we're talking about uh, pride celebrations in countries in Africa and small towns in America and places all over the world where it has not happened before. We are still in the midst of a great coming out and a great liberation movement. So long-lasting impacts, we're still in the middle of it. I think it's far too soon to judge that. All we can do is dive in and be part of it and uh, make the world a better place by our participation. Is there anything else that you want listeners, particularly young listeners who were not alive during the 80s and 90s, to know about AIDS and the epidemic and activism? Mostly I want young people to know that speaking up and fighting back brings joy. Uh, I quit a job as, as a writer-producer at CBS News because it wasn't fulfilling me. And I went to work in the LGBTQ community thinking that I was sort of retreating from the world and, and that I had had my moment in the sun as a CBS News producer. But what I found out, much to my astonishment, was how much more interesting and joyful the work in the community was than working in the mainstream for CBS News. So I want people to find that joy, find that uh, involvement that gives their lives meaning. And uh, that sounds cliched, but it's been very real for me. And I am so grateful to have stumbled into this. I really didn't mean to. <laughs> it was totally an accident. But uh, it was the most lucky thing that ever happened to me. And I just have had so much fun. Uh, when you find out how much fun activism is, you will wonder why you ever wasted a moment not doing it. Uh, activism is about as much fun as you can have in the world. So I highly encourage people to try it out, but please just do something to pay attention to the world. What discourages me most these days is when I hear people say, oh, I never pay attention to politics, or I'm just not interested in any of that. 
And I just want to wring their necks because there are very important life-altering things going on out there. And if you're not involved, you're responsible for this. And it's just shameful. So please pay attention, uh, watch the news or look at it or find it in whatever way you can and do your part. You don't have to do it all. You don't have to do it all day, every day, but do something and you will find great joy in that and you will help the world be a better place. Ann Northrup is a journalist and activist. She was an AIDS educator and a member of ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power. She is the co-host of Gay USA, TV's weekly LGBT news hour. Anne, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Thanks, Lauren. I've enjoyed it. After I talked with Anne, I started thinking about our conversation. The thing that surprised me most about this interview was just how much of the information in it was new to me. In school, I learned about some of the science behind HIV and ways to prevent transmission. I was taught that the epidemic affected many gay men, but I didn't learn much more than that in terms of its relevance in the LGBTQ community. This isn't surprising, considering the controversy over teaching anything related to LGBTQ issues in schools. It could be taboo for teachers to discuss these issues. Outcasting did an episode on this topic. You can find it on the Listen page of our website, outcastingmedia.org. Look for episode 10. I was lucky to have any HIV education at all. Only 34 states and the District of Columbia mandate HIV education, and even fewer require HIV education to be medically accurate and unbiased. Even so, when I joined Outcasting and started to learn more about LGBTQ history, it became clear that I had missed something big. Some of our Outcasting guests, who were not constrained by the taboos we see in schools, regarded the AIDS epidemic as if it was a war. I had not learned about the epidemic in the context of history. I had learned the ways that HIV spread, but I hadn't learned the ways that it hurt people or how many people it affected. I hadn't learned the personal side of it. LGBTQ youth typically learn about HIV and AIDS from outside of our community. Much of the time, we are taught about AIDS by people who don't have personal connections with the AIDS epidemic or the LGBTQ community. So sometimes they will teach it outside of that context. For example, I was taught about Ryan White, a boy who had hemophilia and had gotten AIDS through a blood transfusion. He was stigmatized because he had it. But my teacher never got into the actual reason for the stigmatization, which is that AIDS was primarily seen and vilified as a gay disease. There is also a generation gap in our community. Sadly, much of the generation of gay men who would have been most qualified to pass on knowledge of AIDS at the height of the epidemic is gone. So, we learned that AIDS was bad for people in other countries, or for gay men in America, or for drug users. We learned that something bad happened years ago, somewhere else, to people who were not us and who we are assumed to have no connection to. But we don't get the perspective of those people themselves to explain to us why it was so awful. We don't get the perspectives of activists who work to solve the problems that AIDS brought up. We don't hear from people living with HIV in the present day. We don't really get a lot of primary sources, so we miss important perspectives. Without those perspectives, it's difficult to fully understand the present. During our interview, Anne mentioned that she thought of my generation of LGBTQ youth as being somewhat adrift. I agreed with her because I'd felt that way before I started studying LGBTQ history. I grew up in a period of time in which acceptance of LGBTQ people increased tremendously. I watched states gain marriage equality and watched other students stop using gay as an insult and begin to support their LGBTQ peers. I knew that life was much more difficult for the LGBTQ community before and that it was getting better, 
but without those perspectives from the past, I couldn't see a clear picture of what exactly was happening. Working on this episode and talking with Dan has helped me to see and understand perspectives that I hadn't known before. I hope it has done the same for you. That's it for this edition of Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, where you don't have to be queer to be here. This was the second part of a two-part series. Both parts are available on our website, outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth participants Lauren, Alex, Andrea, Dante, Griffin, Julia, Max, Sophie, Quinn, Nico, Lucas, and me, Druv. Our assistant producer is Josh Valley, and our executive producer is Mark Sophus. Outcasting is a production of Media for the Public Good, a listener-supported independent producer based in New York. More information about Outcasting is available at outcastingmedia.org. You'll find information about the show, listen links for all Outcasting episodes, and the podcast link. Outcasting is also on social media. Connect with us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386 or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is an organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Again, the number is 866-488-7386. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Outcasting LGBTQ Resources. I'm Drew. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make a tax-deductible gift to Media for the Public Good. We can't do programs like this without your support. Visit mfpg.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.